This morning, obviously, because it's such a special day, we spend a lot of time focused on this because it is a special day for us because we recognize that we believe that Jesus Christ is not dead somewhere in the ground, but he's a risen Savior and he's coming again. And that is a terrific, terrific thing for us to be able to focus upon that. And so even though the weather's not great, the reality is Jesus Christ, he's doing really well. In fact, he's doing great. And you don't have to worry about him because we have a great Savior. And for that, we are grateful and grateful for God's work in our life. You know, a little while, I think it was about a year ago, the Pew Research Group, many of you are familiar with that, where they do surveys and things like that. They did an interesting thing. They wanted to ask the question, approximately how many Christians do you think there are in the world? Now, in your mind, we're going to pause for a second, and you in your mind don't call it out. How many Christians do you think in this world there are people who identify themselves as Christians? What they came out and found was this, 2.1 billion Christians. Not million, 2.1 billion Christians. Now stop and think about that for a moment. Because today, in our culture right now, here in America, what we see is some things that are not looking good for the Christian faith. You go to Europe, many of you have been to Europe and been in these beautiful places. We've been in these beautiful cathedrals and the reality, particularly in Europe, we're finding more and more people just, I'm not interested in church. They don't go. Usually it's just a group of older people, a few people there in the church. And it's very, very sad. The place where Luther and Lamanchthon and all these different great guys were all there and all what they did in the Reformation, I mean, it's still there, but it slowly seems to be going away. In England, we know a number of the churches there that have, can't keep going. They just don't have enough parishioners. They're now becoming mosques. That's an interesting issue for us as a culture to what we're doing. And so in the one sense, we could say, well, there's great things. 2.1 billion people, that's great. But it raises the question, of those 200 billion people, how many of them actually know what we mean when we talk about knowing Christ and they have a relationship with Christ? Because we know in lots of different cultures, it's kind of like, you know, my dad was a Christian and my great-grandfather was a Christian. I just guess that makes me a Christian. And it doesn't necessarily have any kind of real connection to them spiritually, to the Lord. And that's a dangerous thing. It happens in lots of different groups. And so we don't know exactly what the number is. God knows how many that are really Christians and what it is and what's important. But what we want to do today in this passage, and really the passage we're looking at, is we want to be able to look at four things. One, two, three, four. And this comes right out of a lot of the ancient creeds. It's a little statement. It's very, very short. And yet it is very significant. And it's also significant that my thing is not working, Ethan. And I'm not sure why. Let me see, there we go. Call it about four words of life. And here's the four words. Christ died for us. That in every, any way doesn't completely tell what we believe as Christians, but it's a nice little way. Four things. Christ died for us. It gives us a kind of a snapshot. It doesn't tell us all that we know about God, all that we know about Jesus, all what we're supposed to do or what he's calling us to do, but it is saying here's something that's short, something that early creeds 
These are Christians when they came to faith in Christ and they started writing and, and making books and stuff like that. They thought, you know what, here's something that's really short. It wasn't like the Nicene Creed and some of the Heidelberg creeds. Some of them use these little short kind of things to give people the idea, what is it that Christians believe? And that's what we want to focus on for just a few minutes. And so we want to focus on four things. Christ died for us. Obviously, we're going to start with Christ. And that's the important one. Because a lot of times when we have people, they ask them, do you believe in Christ? Well, who is Christ? I mean, how does that fit with the whole thing? Well, that's a good question. What we want to focus on here is what do we mean when we talk about the word Christ? In the Old Testament, this is the time of the Jewish people before Jesus came into this earth, that they, when they talked about a person that they wanted to have as a special person, they would say, this person is the Mashiach. That is, this is the person who's the anointed one. In that time that we call it the Old Testament era, that during that time you had priests and you had prophets and if they were very special, sometimes they'd be anointed with oil, a sign of saying that you're special, you're called out. And so they called that the Old Testament and say, hey, this is Mashiach. We get the word Messiah being connected with that. So in the Old Testament, it was very important who the anointed person was. And we're going to see this as we go in this passage. In the New Testament, when we come over to the New Testament, now you're more in a different era. You're no longer in the Old Testament. We're now in the era when Christ has come where the Romans and the Greeks are in charge. And so they don't use the word Mashiach there when Jesus was there. They would often use the word Christos, a word that we talk about a lot. That becomes a lot of times that people use that term. That adds a person who is a Christos. Again, it's the idea of the anointed one. And the big issue was, well, who is that anointed one and what's the significance of it? We talk about Jesus. People say, wait a minute, you're talking about G Christ, and then you're talking about Jesus. Well, ultimately, you're talking about the same thing in just a slightly different way of describing it. Because when we talked about that, we talked about Christ. He, he is the ultimate anointed one. And that's interesting because when we come to the New Testament, Jesus is a term that's often used. And the word Jesus, again, has this important thing, talking about the idea of Yeshua, the one who is the Savior, the one who has helped his people and who has restored them. Okay, so these are different terms, but they all keep coming back to one thing, that God in heaven has a son named Jesus. Jesus is the one whom God has called. He is the ultimate anointed one. That's important. In the Old Testament, when you saw the kings, and you go back from the time of the very beginning of the kings, you came to the time of King David, and he was seen as the Mashiach, he, the, the one that's significant. He was the great king. He was a great king. He also had some great problems. He wasn't perfect. He had some really bad struggles. And so what's interesting is say, but they said he had a promise. God's big on promises. And he said, you know what, David, David, you've done a lot of bad things. And it's really bad. You've killed a lot of people. He said, but I want to give you a promise. And that promise is this. You're going to have a son, another son, decades of kings. And one day, one day, there will be a king who is going to be like none other. He is going to be a king, different than what you think of. You're thinking of a cross, and you're thinking of a chariot. It's going to be different, but it's going to be wonderful because God in his mercy has made a promise that what he has started in the Old Testament will be completed in the New Testament and how God is working 
in the lives of his people. So here we talk about this passage again. We talk about Christ. He is the Messiah. He is the one we call Christ. And it's important to recognize in the second one, Christ died. Now, people go, duh, everybody knows that. The one thing you can be absolutely sure of is everybody dies. Unless you're part of that group when Jesus comes back in glory. But we don't know how long that was. Many of the apostles thought it might be in their lifetime. It's been almost 2,000 years, and it hasn't happened yet. It could be another 2,000 years. I hope not. I hope it's not sooner than that. But when we talk about the fact that Christ died, that's absolutely significant because his life and his death was unlike anyone else. Because recognize what happened to Jesus. And we have to talk for a minute about what people expected when they heard about Jesus and they saw that here is this remarkable man. Jesus is a man who's going around. He's healing people. He's taking people that are dealing with the demonic. He has people. He's seen his mother-in-law get healed immediately. He saw people hey, take a little bit of bread and feed a mass of people. All these things that they're saying, they're going, this must be the guy. He is great. You can see what's happening. And look what God is doing in all this time. But we talk the fact that, that the reality is death is still something that's going to happen to all of us unless we're in that last generation. But what's different is that all people die other than that group we just mentioned. There's a reality that Jesus is going to die, but in a very different way. And that's an important thing. His death is unique from your death, my death, your grandparents, your great-grandparents because of what God has done and what God is doing. In the Gospel of John, John made this comment. He was there getting close to the cross. They were going to put him up on a Roman cross and nail him on the cross. And the people were saying, ah, what are you going to do about Jesus? Nothing you can do. And then this passage, Jesus said this. Jesus said, no one takes it from me. In other words, no one's going to take my life. He said, well, yeah, we could. They just did it. You saw the Romans. They're taking you, taking you for a cross. Jesus no, you don't get it. No one takes it from me. But notice this phrase, but I lay it down on my own accord. In other words, she's saying, I am fully in charge. If I can make bread to feed 5,000 people, if I can help people who are completely seen to be like a little girl who's dead and suddenly she's alive, let me tell you, Romans, I can do whatever I choose to do when I choose to do it. What's happening in that passage is Jesus is saying, I could stop that anytime I want, and I won't do it because I've got a role to play. I've got a task to do, and it's going to be awful for me. It's going to be terrific for you, but it comes at an awful price. And so he said, I lay it down at my and authority, and I take it up again. This command I received from my father. And then a little bit more goes on the story there, and it talks about how there they had a couple thieves, and Jesus was going to be among the three. And so it said there were two criminals were crucified with him, with Jesus, two criminals and Jesus, one of them on the right and one of those on the left. Those who passed by were yelling insults and shaking their heads. Now let's stop right there. Jesus, at that moment, if he had the kind of power he'd been showing them over all this time, particularly in Galilee, he could say, you know what? I don't like you talking like that. How about I zap you? What do you think about that? 
Jesus is not in the zapping kind of phase at this point. It's in the dying phase. It's saying, I have the power to do this. I choose not to do this. Jesus, of course, is looking back again to that Old Testament era where they honored God by taking a lamb or a goat and they would cut it up and they'd burn it and the, and the, and the smoke would go up and they said there's like something that would be glorifying to God to, to show that they're, their love for him. And he's saying, you know what? They did that with, a guy, with an animal, but now they're going to do that with me. And I'm going to let them do that because I'm going to be the ultimate sacrifice. Those lambs, those goats could never bring full salvation to people. Only Jesus could. And right here, he's saying, I could do this. You're not going to take it from me, but I'm going to let you do that. He said, this command I received from my father. That's John chapter 10. And this is crucial because he keeps saying, you know, I, you Romans, you think you're in charge. You control this whole part of the world. You're nothing compared to what I can do by the power of God in the will of God. And so that's where we see this passage is bringing us. It's when it says Jesus died. He said the two criminals were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. Those who passed by were yelling insults and shaking their heads and saying, saying, the one who would demolish the sanctuary and rebuild it in three days, go ahead, save yourself. If you're the son of God, come on down from the cross. You can do that, right, Jesus? Aren't you powerful enough? Healing all these people, all these amazing miracles. Why don't you do it? Show us. Matthew chapter 27, that's what it's talking about. Oh, if you're the son of God, come on down. Okay, what about these poor guys next to you? You can come down, right? Jesus said, I'm sorry, I'm not playing your game. He said, I'm not doing that. He's saying, basically, I have the power. I choose not to use the power because God has called me to be the final atonement that men and women, boys and girls, can have a relationship with God. They're no longer bringing goats. In this church here, we don't bring goats or lambs, unless it's something very strange, I would think. But in the Old Testament, they did. But it could never fully bring complete salvation to mankind. And Jesus said, you know what? Someone's going to have to do this. And Jesus said, at the will of my Father, that's exactly what I'm going to do. I will take your sin. Sin, again, is that which we do against God, what's wrong. It's the things that we do all the time. Half the time we don't even aware of it. and Sometimes we're very aware of it. But Jesus said, I know what's happening here. I'm fully in control. And I'm going to tell you, I'm going to do this for you, that you can have a relationship with God. So it's Christ he died, and then this third one is rather strange, but the idea of for Christ is for what? When you look at this passage and you see how it's used a number of times, it has sometimes this idea of purpose. Christ died for something like this. A person went and got another job for the opportunity to help somebody else. So it can be used for a sense of purpose. It can be used as well for all. Christ is there for all, for those who will come by salvation, by recognizing that they failed God and they need to come to come find life in him. He uses that word for, again, for completion. And that's an important one. 
because it keeps coming back. The book of Hebrews, if you've read it before, it keeps coming back of saying how Jesus did this and this and all these things, and it had to be completed. Jesus had to do the work that his Father sent him to do that we can have a relationship with God. And that's why this passage is so important. Christ died for, and the next one, the last one, is he died for us. Now think about that. The Son of God, who there in Israel, who years, over the years, probably about three, thinks maybe three and a half years, Jesus going around healing, helping, doing so much of teaching and helping the people, and yet he died. And yet the reality, when he talks about Christ died for us, there's a good question we ought to ask ourselves is, really? Why would he bother? Why would he want to hang around with people like us? Why would he care for us, considering that we've had so many problems and we've turned so often away from God? Really, God, does that, are you really going to do that for us? Why? What would be the reason for that? I mean, we have nothing to offer you. And Jesus says, you know what? You're right. It's not because we think we're so wonderful, because he says, don't get that way, because you're not. Okay? All we like sheep have turned away, it tells us in the scriptures. There's a beautiful little phrase here in Romans chapter 5 with this great phrase. It says this, but God proves his own love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. What a powerful passage that is. Think what it's saying. Now, Jesus said, now God proves his love in this, that if you work a little bit harder and give more money to the church and, and you work back at the cookout and you do all the things we need to do, and Lord, I think I'm trying to be good enough to be, to be accepted by you, and, 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 and God said, oh, you don't get it. Let me go over this one more time. God proves his love for us and that while we were sinners... In other words, Jesus did not wait till we got our act together because in reality, you'll never get your act together until you go to be with Jesus and come to know him. But God proves his own love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. I don't deserve that goodness. I don't, you don't deserve it. It's all mercy. It's all love. It's all of what God is all about. And that's what we're celebrating today and why it's so important for us. Christ died for us. And that significance is important. And you ask this question, so how do you respond to such love and mercy? If God is really willing to do that for me, how would you respond? I mean, how in any way could you repay him? hundred bucks, Jesus? Maybe a thousand? Maybe a billion? Would that be enough? Like, you're not getting it. How do we respond to such love and mercy? In a sense, it's the idea of turning from, turning back from believing that you've got your act together and you're fine the way that you are. Jesus going, no, I don't think so. You don't get it. All of us, other than Jesus, have turned away from Christ. All of us have turned away from what God has offered so freely. So you turn from the fact that you think you're in charge and you're going to run the way you're things, and Jesus saying, you're not getting it. Jesus said, when he took his 12 disciples, what was the word he said? Follow me. And he said, you know, that's all you can do. I'm asking you to follow me. And so he said, turn away from that. The other one, he said, turn the other direction. And he says, you need to turn away from that and turn to Christ, to know him, to understand him, and to live a life that's honoring to him. 
and to have the privilege of receiving God's gift. God is willing to give us that which we could never earn. It only comes from the mercy of God. And what Jesus Christ has done is said, you know what? God could justly send every single person in this room to hell, and he'd still be a just God. I'm sorry if that makes you mad or disappointed, but it's true. When you read the book of Romans and you read the first three chapters, it's telling us all of us have made mistakes. All of us have turned away, and God in his mercy has brought us back into relationship with him. And God is saying the door is wide open to receive God's gift, to come to the point of saying, Lord Jesus, I really believe that you're real. I believe that you really did do those miracles, that you really can be the one to bring me into a right relationship. And Lord, if you will take me, I'll come. I can't believe you'd want me. I've got nothing to offer. Jesus saying, that's just the way I like it. Because let me show you what I can do as you grow in your faith and the power of the Lord. To receive God's gift. To know what God is doing. Last passage. Notice this. This is one of the most famous passages in the world, but it's a good one. For God loved the world in this way. He gave his one and only son. Notice this phrase. So that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. It is a famous passage. It ought to be. It's saying that this is what Christ has done for us, that everyone who believes. People say, well, it can't be that easy. I mean, you've got to do X and Y and Z. Jesus says, no, you need to believe. Do you believe that Jesus Christ can be your Savior? I do, Jesus, and I want to know you. He says, all right, you can be part of my family. You can see what I can do in your life to transform you to be the woman, the man, the young person that God wants to do. Notice that verse. God did not send his son into the world that he condemned the world. That's not his purpose in coming. He has no joy in discipline. He said, but that the world might be saved through him. The question is, do you know Christ? Has there been a point in your life where you realize that our sin separates us from a holy God, that Christ, out of mercy and love, is willing to give us a new relationship with him? And all of that comes not because of what we did or do, but what Christ is doing and willing to do for us. That's what makes the gospel so beautiful. That's what makes it so powerful. That's what changes our lives. And that's what this passage this section is all about. He is risen. He's risen. Is that a reality for you? We hear this so many times. Yeah, I've been there. I mean, you know, how many of these risen things I've been to? Yep, a lot. But he's saying, does that, how does that touch you? To know that Jesus Christ is alive and well, and because of that, he is more than capable of teaching you, helping you to understand, helping you to grow in your faith to be the man and woman that God wants you to do. He is risen. He's risen indeed. And I want to give you a challenge. If you're not sure what we know what we're talking about here, if there's questions about it, I'll be up front here. John Wilson's over here or other elders, any of the guys or women here. To, if you have a question, don't be afraid to ask them. What does that mean? What was Pastor Carl talking about? Was he normally that weird? No, it's not normal. But say, what was it that maybe, God, you want you to ask a question about that? Please feel free to come talk to us. Any of us would be happy to talk to you about what God has done, what God is doing, and what God is about to do. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this day that we have this special day where we remember 
that, Lord, you are God. You are great. You have given us salvation. And we pray, Father, that if there's anyone that's here that's never come to a full understanding of the knowledge of the gospel, that, Father, you would be, through the power of your spirit, helping them to understand the glory of the gospel and the greatness of God's love, and they would find their life in you. Be with us now. Help us as we continue in our worship. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.